I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, status. It's not just about power and riches. Status games have been played for millennia. They're part of being human and can drive success. But comparing yourself to others also has a dark side. We can be perfectly safe and secure. We can have health care. We can be providing for our families. We're doing fine. And yet we can still feel like failures because, because we didn't get promoted or because I'm stuck in this job I don't like. And that's the problem with status. And later, the business of status. How marketing and a good story influences what makes us feel good. We like to laugh at these snobs who drink expensive wine and you say, ah, put a blindfold on them. They couldn't tell the difference. And that might be true in terms of taste. But it turns out people really do enjoy expensive wine more because they think they're having a prestigious or a status-driven experience. The history and evolution of status games, from antiquity to modernity. That's coming up on Life Examined. Like it or not, status is everywhere in modern life. Though most of us won't achieve the kind of status of Beyonce or Jeff Bezos, at a basic level, we all vie for status, whether at work or with friends and family. And playing the status game has always been a part of who we are. In prehistoric times, status afforded the early hunters and gatherers the best resources, like food, shelter, and choice of mate. Whether you kept bees, were a healer, or hunter, status defined how you were regarded within your tight community. Today, as then, status is conveyed through competence and virtue. People with high status have monumental influence. We mimic not just their actions, but also their beliefs. Religious leaders and generals have been replaced to a certain extent by TikTokers, influencers, and YouTubers. And we measure status by metrics, rings, and blue check marks. So, does having status make us healthier or feel any happier? In his latest book called The Status Game, Our Social Position and How We Use It, author Will Storr said that people with higher status and successful careers do actually live a little bit longer. In fact, the desire to achieve a high status is so strong that some workers would choose a fancier job title over a pay raise. Well, Will Storr, welcome to Life Examine. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. I love this this conversation we're about to have about status. I think it's a fascinating thing that my take is it shows up everywhere, and I'm sure you'll tell us more about that. But um, how did you get interested in this or, or think it was something worthy you know, of a full book? Um, give, us, give us part of your, your story into this. Well, I was aware of a lot of new science coming out, which was really showing how absolutely fundamental status is to human life, you know, cross culture, cross gender, cross age, uh, you know, everywhere you go in the world. Um, status is this, this, this just absolutely elemental um, thing that kind of drives us. And lots of it's unconscious, like we, we don't like to think of ourselves as being interested in status but but it was one of those things where as soon as I started thinking about it for more than you know four seconds <laughs> mm. you, you, you know you start to see it everywhere you think yeah that that that, that sounds absolutely true so you know there, there hasn't actually been surprisingly been that much written about um you know status in the past so I just mm. thought um it, it, it was a really great um and kind of current um investigation to pursue something tells me that this human interest in status is nothing new but it's probably something very hard hardwired in us as a species that goes back a long, long ways. Where do we see this show up when we look at it historically? Well, yeah, you, I mean, it goes back millions of years. I mean, you, you know, the, our kind of ancestors before we were even human um, would have um, engaged in status status battles, you know, status contests. Um, but, but what kind of defines our humanity are these kind of new ways that we play status games. Like, you know, most animals play dominance-based status game mm. so it's uh, you know when when two hens meet each other they'll peck at each other until a pecking order is established that's dominance that's a you know violence aggression of course we still do that that's what's happening in you know russia ukraine at the moment um uh, but 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 what kind of defines us as humans are these um we also play games with our reputation um you know that, and actually that takes up most of our as long as we're not assuming we're not incredibly violent people, um, that that takes up most of our life. Are these are these kind of games that we play a reputation? We have a reputation of either being kind of morally good. That's kind of one kind of game. I call that the virtue game in the book. In the book, um, and then we also play success games. So games around kind of competence. Um, so, so, so 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 you know these kind of dominance games, virtue games, and success games. You know really do kind of define 
human social life. Mm. Is it safe to say that, you know, early forms of, of human societies or cultures were very much built around this? I mean, the idea of clans or tribes and that there would be a leader within them and that that was something that was just always important in how we developed. Well, actually, you know, one of the most surprising things that I discovered when I was doing my research is that the is that the leader is very much a, a recent um, uh, invention, mm. kind of culturally in human societies. In pre-modern groups, there wouldn't have been this kind of big man or big woman figure that, that everybody had to kind of cow down to. Um, you, you know, we were much more um, egalitarian um, in those days. But when scientists call us egalitarian, you know, they're not. Um, implying that we lived in this kind of communist bliss and nobody was interested in status. The reason that, that, that there were no leaders and that, and that the status differentials were quite kind of shallow in those groups is because everybody was so concerned <laughs> with their own level of status that it, it, if one other person tries to kind of push themselves up and act like, you know, the big, all-powerful individual, they will be very quickly and sometimes violently put put back in their place. And, that you know, that's human nature. So, so, but, so, so yeah, you know, it does go, it does go, um, uh, you know, very deep into our, into our history. But we, we only, you know, start to get, you know, big, powerful leaders when we settle down uh, and stop being, and start, you know, being agricultural. Because with agriculture comes things like, private property which leads to the accumulation of wealth and power so th so that enables you know people to really become um, you know, have extremely high status. Mm, say more about that. I mean, I think that's a period of time that seems to come up a lot in this show. I mean, we talk about the birth of property also being the birth of modern day marriages and you know, not in great ways. Oftentimes the idea of women kind of being bound up to property and the hoarding of one's kin to take care of the property. Um, but it does seem to be that was a period where one would gather material things and that became very important in terms of how they define themselves or were able to exist within a culture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so before we settled down, as I said, it was very hard to actually achieve extremely high status. Um, you would have had a reputation as a great, you know, honey finder or a storyteller or a sorcerer um, or as a, you know, morally good person, as somebody that knew the rituals and believed the beliefs and um, uh, was selfless and shared your resources and that kind of thing so you'd have a you know a, a good virtuous reputation or a good kind of success reputation but but that that didn't necessarily lead to you being powerful and being a big leader um it was true in those groups that that the more status that you had in those in in hunter-gatherer groups um the more resources that would flow to you so you get better meat you get more food um, you get safer sleeping sites, you get your, a greater access to your choice of mates. So things, your life would get better and your capacity to survive and reproduce would get better. But 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 our kind of huge kind of drive for personal status would always be kept in check by the group. Mm. Um, but as soon as we settle down, of course, then, you know, that, 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 that all that kind of breaks down and, and you start to have people who, well, I own this plot of land now and I own this farm and actually this farm is very profitable. So I'm going to accumulate resources. And, and I think one of the really interesting ways of looking at human nature, uh, and this is kind of a thing, something I pursue in the book too, is is, is that the the status game. A lot of it is subconscious. Um, you know, we have this great subconscious drive to accrue status, but our conscious experience of life is more like a story. We, we're kind of storytellers, and I think one of the kind of um, kind of almost alchemical things that happens in that period when we start settling down is that you, you start getting these family groups and clans that have more power than any other family group and clan, you know, because of, you know, whatever, probably luck, chance. Uh, they happen to have the most fertile bit of, you know, land in the, in the area or whatever it might be. Um, but the storytelling brain kicks in and the storytelling brain says, well, and, and, is, and we all do this uh, when we accrue, um, you know, reasonable levels of status. We say, well, I deserve it because I'm better than other people. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I, I'm better at my job or I'm a more virtuous person. I'm a, I'm a kinder person. So I deserve all this status. And then, you, and then what happens um, in history is that the, the clans at the top start considering themselves to be this kind of priestly, almost sacred class of, of people, like, yeah. a, like, a, like a superior class of people. And, and the amazing thing is everybody else kind of agrees with them <laughs> because they look at all their riches and their amazing status and all the, all the symbols of status they've accrued and go, well, they, they must be special. Um, so, 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 yeah, and as you say, you know, it's a, um, 
it certainly wasn't all good. I mean, when you look at in the book, I talk about how um, when, this is when they start seeing um, uh, huge differentials in, in kind of mortality and health outcomes. You, you see uh, when they when they look at skeletons from the early days of agriculture, the people at the top of the group um, had far less disease, mm. uh, lived far longer than the people at the bottom of the group. Um, so, so, so yeah, that's when that, that that's when the you know with, with the kind of expansion of the status game, you get these. Um, quite negative effects on the people lower down the pecking order. Yeah. This reminds me, I mean, of experiences I had traveling through India a lot, you know, and you would see the caste system there, for example, still being a profound aspect of the way that people live. You'd have shudras at the bottom and then Brahmins at the top. And those at the top, just as you say, um, thought of themselves as priestly, as as almost uh, deities in and of themselves or able to access that. But to me, it was a reminder that this this theme of status is still very alive in parts of the world. I mean, I think I think it's everywhere. But if you look at a country like that, it's just right on the surface of how people think of themselves and how they live in the world. Yeah, completely. And uh, you know, I write about that in the in the in the book too. And, and when I was researching the kind of Indian caste system, because it is one of the most kind of astonishing you know, an ancient status games in existence, the Indian um, caste system, you know, to the extent where if a, if an unclean, in inverted commas, person, if their shadow crawl, falls across your food, you've got to throw the food away. Oh, I mean, wow. it really is unbelievably harsh. Um, and again, you know, the, the, the astonishing thing, and, and I think this is sort of a really profound observation about human nature is, is like you say is, is that we tend to accept these stories about status we tend to look up at the people at the top and think well they they obviously deserve it you know and sometimes that's partly true especially in success games obviously we don't have a perfect meritocracy in the west but we're trying to get there mm-hmm. and there is a rough system whereby people who offer more value to the economy or whatever you know rise up the status game and i and i, and I think that's a good thing but what was fascinating me was when you look at the some of the writings of from people um in india is that they you know when they find themselves to, in a life in which they're considered lower caste or unclean, uh, you know, rather than rejecting that story and saying, well, this is nonsense, it's rubbish, um, they, 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 tell themselves, they accept it, but they tell themselves a story where they say things like, well, um, you know, there's a mistake and actually I'm, I'm not really in this caste, I should be in that caste. And there's another, um, you know, I read an autobiography of, of somebody that was in the kind of, um, you know, in inverted commas, unclean. They were kind of lower caste people who look down their noses at people who they consider even more lower caste than they are. So they, you know, they accept that story about status, but they kind of focus on the people that they consider kind of even more unclean than they. So, yeah, you know, it it can get, you know, very toxic very quickly, Mm. unfortunately, this um, status stuff. And what do you think is happening psychologically when we consider status? Like the idea that if we, you know, ascend or if we reach this certain point, X will happen. I don't know, maybe we'll be safer, (laughs) we'll be wealthier, because there's something deep in us that's churning, I think, in our psyches when we think about status. Yeah, yeah, again, and again, it's this astonishing kind of tension there is between the subconscious game and the conscious story so um you know i talk you know i think about it as the myth of the happy ending Mm. um the storytelling brain the conscious brain says well once i achieve x i'm going to be happy yeah um uh, and of course it's nonsense (laughs) um one of the studies that always made me chuckle when i you know that i write about in the book was that was some psychologists found a bunch of really 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 extraordinary rich people you know millionaires to billionaires and and they asked these rich people how much money would you need to be perfectly happy and consistently, they all said two to three times as much money. No matter wow. how much money they had, they all, they all said two to three times as much as money. And, they, and it made me chuckle because it, it's obviously not true <laughs> that they're going to be perfectly happy when they, when they earn two, two, two to three times as much as money. But, but also because it's just absolutely human. You know, if you could have told me when I was a school kid, failing all my exams, that I'd one, be, one day be being interviewed by, you know, an American... Uh, you know, thinker on on the radio and have books published and and, and so on. Uh, you know, I'd think I'd I'd think, wow, you must you, you're going to be really happy. You're going to have this perfect, amazing life. But of course, that's not true. You know, I'm constantly thinking about this thing that didn't work out and this thing I want to do next. And oh my God, what about this person over here that's doing so well compared to me? And the storytelling brain is always weaving us this myth that life has happy endings. That mm. once we achieve a certain level of status, we're going to be perfectly happy. And, and it's not true because life 
feels like a story but subconsciously it's this game you know partly it's this game that we're playing for status and and and, you know no matter how rich we are you know elon musk clearly isn't perfectly happy (laughs) jeff bezos clearly isn't perfectly happy you know Meghan markle clearly isn't perfectly happy um you know so so i i I think the interesting thing about status is is that when we have these kind of breakthroughs uh status can make us really happy and um you know we some, some of the best moments of our life are moments in which we feel applauded and valued and as if we've really achieved something and that and that's great but but they're fleeting because that because then you want to get to the next place and the next place and the next place and the next place and you know that's functional i mean you know we we have civilization itself to you know um to to to, to thank for this mm. you know to, you know because even you know adam smith who's you know the father of capitalism even he acknowledged that it wasn't money that motivated people um it was it was what he called the esteem of the fellow of their fellow man it was you know its status that that that, that pushes on pushes us on to you know greater and greater achievements so um you know as I, I always think of status as it's definitely the worst of us um but, but it's also i think that part of the best of us too yeah no it's true i think even for those that make vast amounts of money, it, it almost seems that it's really not so much about that, but it's this myth of being the great man or the great woman, right? The, the great legacy, the leader of ideas or thought or, you know what I mean? Like it, it's more than just finances, actually, the more I think about this. There, there's something bigger happening, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, we didn't evolve to crave money because money hasn't been around long enough. We've, we evolved to crave status, and, and money is just one way that we measure our status. There, there are all kinds of different ways we can, we can measure our status. Like somebody on Wall Street or a, you know, a big firm lawyer may well measure their status on the level of income that they earn every year. But somebody who is you know, a Buddhist uh, or, or a nun or a monk will measure their status on how, much, how little they can consume and earn uh, and still survive and be you know happy so mm. so, so it's the opposite game for them i mean one of the studies that I, I really liked that i came across was a 1950s anthropological study of a of an island in micronesia called pompeii and there's a brilliant description there of a status game that they have that revolves around growing giant yams of all things uh-huh. um so 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 in pompeii you know it's like lots of places it's very you know it's, it's very stratified there's the chiefs at the top and everybody else in you know in layers down below it's very hard to rise in status in pompeii but the one place you one way you can do it is by growing an enormous yam and taking it to the chiefly feast uh-huh. and the, the person who's brought the growing the biggest yam is literally declared number one they call that person number one um and 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 they you know had the the gift of kind of high status and the astonishing thing about that is just how unbelievably good the people of pompeii have become at growing yams, at growing yams uh-huh. yeah it's, you know they're, so, so they're so big that these yams they have to build stre- special stretches and have you know six eight ten people carrying these yams into the the, into the feast so you know i love that study because it shows you know it shows the status game it shows that it shows that you can anything you can use anything to play status with it doesn't have to be money it can it can it can perfectly well be yams yeah. but also it's testament to the amazing um power of the human mind the human brain when when there's status at stake we we can do almost anything you know miracles can happen and the and and these you know poor um farmers in pompeii have become absolutely astonishingly good at mm. growing massive yams mm-hmm. and, and and so when you when you when you when you you know that's that's you know one kind of status game but if if the status game you're, you're playing is uh to who can design the best vaccine to um get rid of uh, you know covid19 then suddenly you see how um, incredibly powerful and positive you know status yeah. games can be this reminds me of, of a story because you mentioned how it's not just those who are the wealthiest or i mean maybe or those that can grow the greatest yams but those that are on the far opposite side of this i remember i was i spent six months living in a tibetan buddhist monastery doing research for university and um and even within that, within the monastery, there were rankings. You would graduate at the X level or AB or B level or C level or D level. And everybody was trying to, you know, joust to become the highest level monk within the institution. That's interesting to me because, 
you know, you look at something like Buddhist philosophy, you wouldn't think that ego would be wrapped into any of this. You would think actually ego is the last thing that we're trying to uh, preserve or or go after. So it's just interesting that, you know, even in, in these kind of like ascetic traditions, somebody can still be, you know, fighting for status to be the greatest meditator or to be the wisest. Well, even they are, though, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's human nature, and it, and it's you know, it, yeah, it, it feels surprising, but it isn't because we can't help it. You yeah. know, that 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 that's just how um, you know, human nature is. And in, in in you know, the last chapter of the book, I I tell the story of the Soviet Union because it was this incredible um, experiment um, that they wanted to get rid of status. That that's the whole point of communism is to get rid of status and only have you know collection, connection, and belongingness. And um, and of course, it didn't work. Um, the Soviet Union ended up being incredibly stratified. Um, there, there was an anthropologist went over there in the in the 1950s and found 12 distinct social classes, which is like, you oh. know, like way more even than Britain at the time. Yeah. Um, it, it, all they did all they did was flip it. So the, the the people that were poor were now at the top, and the people that were rich were now at the bottom. Huh. And and there was you know even more discrimination. And uh, you know it, it, you know you you can't rid the human brain of the status. Um, craving because it's it's been there for millions of years the forces around us in tech or capitalism or meditation apps or whatever have really figured this out and have gotten very very good at making our lives all about numbers and status you know um everything you do now is a ranking and it puts you in some type of order of you know good medium bad or literally puts you in competition with other people i you know i do a lot of endurance sports so i I'm always in rankings. I'm always being put up, uh, you know, in contrast to somebody in the same village or across the world that's pushing a higher power on a bike or running a faster mile. And so, I mean, maybe you can just spend a second talking about how this is now, like it or not, the world we live in, and we're hooked. I mean, it's like it's like an addiction. I think it's it's everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, my, I, the social media that I argue is you call it a slot machine for status. You know, it, it's um. It's quite well known the psychology of of social media now that it's um, um, it becomes compulsive because it issues inconsistent rewards. As, you know, sometimes you'll put a tweet or a picture on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, and you know you'll get no response. And sometimes it will go, you get loads of response, and sometimes you might even get a negative response. So right. it's a bit like um, putting the arm of a slot machine. Um, but I think what what lots of people don't realise is that is that you know what what actually are you gambling with and of course it is status um you know it's it's all designed around status it's um you know followers likes retweets they're all measures of status the little blue ticks that now elon musk is allowing people to buy thus ruining the the, the high status you know quality of the blue tick um yeah and 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 so and, you know I, I i talked at the beginning of our chat about those three kinds of status game dominance which is aggression push, you know pushing people around um, virtue and success and of course you know that is social media you know if you go to twitter instagram you know linkedin linkedin is full of people you know boasting about their successes and also their virtues these mm-hmm. days um twitter is is the same um instagram is very success based it's about look how look how thin i am look at my lovely house look at my amazing holiday I mean, you know, you, you can't imagine um, social media um, without all of that kind of status play um, happening. Absolutely. And I know you've looked at this in the book that when you interview young people, I don't know if it's just in the U.S. or the Western world or wherever, I think there's an acknowledgement now that that's what people want. I mean, maybe you can talk about that, that the real response of what do you want to be when you grow up is I want to be powerful or have high status or, you know, have lots of followers. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, you know, wanting to have high status is is particularly new. I think what is new is the... Okay, when I say new, um, you know, post-Industrial Revolution, before the Industrial Revolution, um, you know, people's... Uh, expectations for the um, ability to to gain high status were very limited because we people just couldn't play these success games we were very stratified by class mm. um you know in all countries uh, and what the industrial revolution did is it, is it enabled you know extraordinary levels of social mobility so it became possible for the first time um for um a, you know a poor person to become a very rich person you know that 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 hadn't happened before and you know we we, we're still living in that era and actually you know what's changed and you know it's sometimes hard to recognize because we're so focused on 
um, senses of grievance because we don't live in a perfect meritocracy and there is still discrimination against um, you know people and you know there are the big parts of the the status game of Western life that are unfair mm-hmm. but compared to how it, how it's been at any other point in history we, we live in you know we live in a more perfect meritocracy now than we ever have done before and things are still going better so we you know we have this huge you know in the US and the UK you know an enormous cultural preoccupation right now with with discrimination and you know and, and that's all about status because underneath that is is well um you know these people deserve these jobs this kind of treatment um and yet they're not getting it because of matters of gender race sexuality whatever it might be you know and i think the encouraging thing about that is is the fact that, that people are so focused on these things uh and it is such a big part of the cultural conversation that it that it shows that we are um, actively trying to solve these issues that, that, that you know and, and I think slowly 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 not 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 as quickly as as we might like but slowly you know th- these issues are um, you know b- b- becoming solved They're, they only get this much focus in the west these issues you know if you go to China um, or, or India people are nowhere near as, as interested in <laughs> trying to solve the problems of racism and sexism and all these other problems that we have with yeah. dysfunctional status games so I think in that way it can be a really important tool for social progress and, and, and really helpful. On the other hand, I think the way I'm hearing this is it can also be an incredible tool for becoming a depressed person or living in a state of feeling that you're not good enough. Because to me, it seems like now all we have access to are visions or ideas or illusions that we can ascend or we can be the rich person or we can be whatever. And when the reality is that may not happen, that the world may not give you that no matter how hard you work. Because to me, it seems like status just moves in one direction. We look up, but we don't really look down. You know, we yeah, want to always travel is... in one direction. And so I, I, I just, to me, it seems like a recipe for a, a, very, a very sad life, if that's the way we live. Well, that's one of the problems with this kind of um, world we live in today where at least theoretically, there is the possibility of, of, of earning extremely high status. Because yeah. as you say, the reality is that, that, that most of us are just normal people and we're not going to become Michelle Obama mm-hmm. you know, or Beyonce or whoever it might be that we feel like we should be. Um, so you know, one of the huge differences, the fundamental differences between now and the tribal life 20,000 years ago is that our status games are enormous um, you know, we, we would be competing in inverted commas in those tribes with, you know, a handful of people. Um, if you wanted to feel like you were a great storyteller or a great sorcerer or a great hunter, there was only a few people around you. Yes, <laughs> you had to feel like exactly. you were a, you were better then. So, so, so it was kind of, you know, it was easy to feel that you were of value compared to other people. But now, I mean, you know, you work for an average corporation, you're competing with thousands of people. We, 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 I mean, luckily, we still, we still, you know, by nature, do you, do, do, you know, do tend to play kind of smaller status games. You know, we most people don't compare themselves to Michelle Obama or the King of Thailand because if they did, they'd have a nervous breakdown. But you know, it, but 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 even with that, you know, we, the larger the status games become, um, the more the harder it is to feel like our lives are successful. Mm-hmm. And you know, and, and we live in this kind of weird reality in the West. Uh, you know, in, in other places too, where. Um, it's, it's astonishing when you think about it that, that, that we can be perfectly safe and secure. We can have health care and uh, we could be providing for our families, you know, our, our partners, our children. So, you know, we, we're doing fine. And yet we can still feel like failures because exactly. what? Because we're a bit fat or because we didn't get promoted or because I'm stuck in this job I don't like. You know, so, so, you know and, and that's the problem with status is that is that there are millions and millions and millions of people in the west who are successful are living function perfectly functional and successful lives are safe and secure and have food and health care and yet they wake up every day feeling like a failure yeah. and, and and that's one of the big problems that we have at the moment i think with mental health yeah absolutely and you talked about it as yourself somebody who has i think really risen up to have a successful life as a writer and i mean you know personally i remember 10 years ago i thought if i could ever have a show on kcrw oh my god i that that would be the that's the be all and end all and i want nothing more than that truly like not joking, you know, and then you arrive and you think, why isn't my show nationally syndicated? Why isn't, uh, why is this show getting more downloads? Why, like, it just doesn't end, you know, and that, 
that's what's so frustrating, I think, about our the way in which we can see success around us and status around us. And so I guess my, the question I have for you is, what, what do we do with this? I mean, how do, we, how do we work with this psychological aspect of us to kind of keep it in check or to acknowledge it? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think, you know, when I was thinking about this, you know, one, one of the best bits of advice that I came across was that was was that it's good to play multiple games. And, and this was a big lesson for myself, you know, like um, I had just been pursuing my career all my life at the, at the exclusion of almost everything else. And that that makes you really vulnerable because, you know, exactly the same as your um, experience where, you know, when I was 23, I thought if I could get a book deal, my life would be complete. But then, of course, you get the book deal and the book doesn't sell very much. And you right. think, well, I'm a failure now because my book flopped. Uh, you know, so, so, so you're on this, this never-ending treadmill. And actually, I think... Uh, you know what? What the scientists, what studies show is that is that um, the actual science says the more groups that we belong to, the happier we are, the more stable we are emotionally. Um, but I think it's about yes, it's about belonging to the groups, but it's also about having feeling like you have status because every group that you belong to is a status game. You know, and actually, I think you know we'd be we are we are, we are well advised to um, you know diversify our status games, especially as we get into middle age. Hmm. And you know I, I think I, I think our twenties and thirties are often we, we're very um, uh, concerned um, with our status in, in in those decades. You know, and for good reason because we're building we're building our lives in those in those decades. But I think when we hit middle age, I think we'd be we're, we should be well advised to diversify and ha- and ha- and have various different. Um, sources of um status so i i think that's a that that, that's a really good tip Uh, and also just the just i think it's it's useful to kind of understand it you know carl jung always said that um there's just value in making the unconscious conscious and if you really understand the status craving and what it is and kind of it's actually your brain just tricking you it's your brain just trying to push you on in life and go go on try harder try harder try harder try harder that's all it is and it's been really helpful to me since doing this research because you know you still feel it when you feel like a failure, but you but you've also have that kind of ability to somehow stand apart from it and look upon it as what it really is, which is just your brain mucking with you. You know, mm-hmm. you said something I think that was interesting, and maybe you can flush it out more. This idea of joining different groups does that mean trying to get status in groups, or just being part of different communities and and recognizing there's there's a power in in just human connection? What did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, so, so it's not really possible to be part of a human group without there being status involved. So, so that's the, the first thing to say. I mean, as soon as you meet somebody, you're unconsciously measuring your status versus theirs. It's, it, it's an instant kind of always on function of the brain. So you, you can't really be in a group without, without um, doing that. But, you know, you mentioned connection and connection is, is just as important as status, the sense of belongingness that we feel accepted um, by groups. You know, I don't write about that much in the status game because it's not a it's not but it's not about that i've got a little chapter about that but it's but it's equally as important you know ju- just feeling that we're accepted and, and, and that we belong but you know it's part of human nature that n- nobody wants to be like a thought of as likable but useless you know when, when we talk about status we, we're talking about feeling that we're of value to other people that's fundamentally what it means that we're that we're seen as a valuable person that we offer value to other people and so you know when we're in a group and if we're invested in that group and we care about that group of course we're going to want to be considered to be of value in that group so yeah both of those things i mean you know i've i've begun volunteering um since writing the status game deliberately specifically because i felt like i'm lacking in belongingness in my life and also I'm pursuing all this kind of success-based status, but I have no virtue-based status. I don't do anything for anyone. I'm not a parent, mm-hmm. apart from my dogs, you know, you know, and my wife. I don't do anything for anyone. And, and, I, and I've just found it to be hugely, you know, rewarding, even though the actual volunteering is, you know, it's, it's bit, it can be a bit tedious and a bit boring and I yeah. don't want to do it sometimes. Um, sometimes I just find myself grinning stupidly. It's just, it's just, it's just, you know, it's, it's just made me really happy. And, and before I'd done this work, I wouldn't, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have understood why, but I just think it's the feeling that you're being of value to other people. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a whole new way I've found of, you know, being a human being that's, that, that, that is successful. It's nothing to do with money. It's to do with, you know, the virtue form of status where you feel like, yeah, I'm doing a good thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think one theme we often come back to in this show, and, you know, our listeners may remember some of the interviews with, with the MIT philosopher Kieran Setia, who wrote a lot about midlife, but just that at a certain point, 
one needs to consider the activity in and of itself and not the end of the activity or the result of the activity. And like he would call this an atelic activity. And I, I find that for me to be so important now. It's, it's just doing something for the sake of doing, not necessarily of where it, it, it puts me in the final ranking, even if that's impossible, I'll always get ranked. But do, do you know what I'm saying? Like that to yeah. me factors into this as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think it's absolutely true. And, you know, when I think about storytelling, you know, um, especially when we're younger, we, you know, we feel like the hero in the story of our lives. But there, there, there are other characters, archetypal characters in storytelling that they're sometimes called light figures. Uh, and they're these kind of wiser, older figures that come in to help the hero achieve their goal. You know, a classic example of light figures being the ghosts in the Christmas Carol, the Scrooge story. The ghosts come in and help Scrooge transform Scrooge from being selfish and mean and horrible to being selfless and popular and you know high status in his community and and, and i and i think that's a function of age too i th- i i think um you, you know that, that there's that feeling that yes you can be a hero in your own life and, and do things that are helpful and um smart and all those other things but also you can be a light figure and you can begin to take pleasure in helping other people achieve their goals My guest has been Will Storr, author and journalist of The Status Game, our social position and how we use it, and also Selfie, how the West became self-obsessed. Will, thank you so much. This was really interesting. Thanks, Jonathan. I appreciate you uh, talking to me. It was good fun. Well, still to come, projecting status. From rescue dogs to expensive wine, we'll hear how status can be sold and why it's so effective. And we hope you're enjoying today's conversation on status, and we'd love to get your perspective on this. What effect does status have on your life? Is it a good thing, a bad thing? Does it drive success or misery? We'd love to get your thoughts. Share your story with our Facebook community. You can find a link at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. We'll be right back after this short break. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and this is KCRW. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard author Will Storr explain some of the history and evolution behind status and why it's such a huge part of human behavior, whether we acknowledge it or not. So how does our perception of status shift? How does something seemingly mundane or ordinary rise in status? Has cultural value rather than luxury become the new symbol of status? Joining me next to share some surprising stories and research is Chuck Thompson, author of The Status Revolution, the improbable story of how the lowbrow became the highbrow. Chuck Thompson, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you. Looking forward to it. I just want to start right at the beginning of your book. You have a wonderful story, and the title of the chapter is The Woman Who Invented Rescue Dogs. So I, I'm curious, how does this fit in to this big question of status in the way that you explore it in the book? I was looking for examples of stories of people who are actually doing things to to change the status of status or, or groups that are gaining or losing status. And it occurred to me that rescue dogs were kind of this group that a lot of people might not think of in terms of status. But in fact, if you think of dogs as a group and, and what rescue dogs are, castoffs, mutts, street dogs, Heinz 57s, as they might have been called, or dogs that people picked up at the pound, as we might have said in the 60s or 70s, have taken on this elevated status over the last 20, 30 years. I mean, not just in terms of society recognizing the value of rescue dogs and their owners, but legally, there are legal protections um, on these dogs. The U.S. military, if you want to live on base housing in um, some U.S. military bases, and own a dog, that dog has to be a rescue dog. Wow. Um, California passed a whole bunch of laws in the 1990s that um, required pet stores, for example, to you know give some 
preference in certain situations to rescue dogs and um, or what we've come to know as rescue dogs, right? And so I wanted to find out, well, how did that happen? Did that Was that just luck or did this organically just explode? Where did rescue dogs come from? And um, I found out that you can really trace the rise of rescue dogs to a woman named Kim Sterla, who in the 1980s was the director of the Peninsula Humane Society in San Mateo, California. And like a lot of other um, executive directors or directors of humane societies and shelters and such, she had been trying for years and years and years to um, get more people to adopt dogs, rescue dogs and cats and pets. And not with, with not much luck, you know, through the, the statistics on animal adoption through the 60s, 70s and 80s are pretty flat. She decided to take a much more militant approach. Kim Sterla had been um, active in animal rights, um, you know, uh, movements from her time at, at college at UC Berkeley in the 60s and 70s. And so what she decided to do was take out an ad, a four-page spread, and actually an insert in the San Francisco Chronicle and the Sunday paper, uh, on which she printed, uh, the, the, the first page of it was a gigantic newspaper tabloid-sized picture of a barrel of dead cats, hmm. um, euthanized cats. And it said something like, it's a dirty job. And then when you opened up the spread, there were more dead animals in you know, poses of rigor mortis. And it says, and, and without you, we, and we couldn't do it without your help. And what she wanted to do was sh shove the brutality of animal euthanasia in front of the public. And this created a huge stir. It was a massive, um, it was a massive controversy in San Francisco. The New York Times covered this sort of um, campaign that she went on. And it turned a lot of people off to what she was doing, but it also turned a lot of people on to what she was doing. And from there, uh, she, she, she kind of started this campaign that ended up, although she said she told me she didn't do it intentionally, it really mirrored the strategies employed by luxury and status marketers, people who sell you know, uh, $5,000 watches and $80,000 sports cars. And she did that by, by sort of adopting these seven primary tenets of luxury marketing. So the first thing you want to do is define, find like-minded people, customers, who share your cultural values and commute those cultural values to them so that they connect to you on a sort of cultural value level. Second thing you want to do is ignore price. You don't want to think that status or luxury has anything to do with price. This is a little bit of a tough concept for people to get their heads around. Of course, we all know that a, you know, maybe a $90,000 diamond has some luxury or status, but price alone does not necessarily confer status. You also want to appeal to people's emotions. Kim Sterla did that with the uh, pictures of the dead animals in the newspaper. I mean, it's negative emotions, but nevertheless, that's what you do. You want to treat your commodity as a precious object. You want to accentuate the flaws. That's another thing about luxury marketing that's pretty interesting, which is, you know, um, every, every expensive timepiece has some kind of flaw. Uh, 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 British sports cars are you know, renowned for their, you know, flawed mechanics here and there. So, and there's a couple more things, you know, from um, providing an uplifting experience to, you know, that was a big marketing sell, uh, even now to the Humane Society. If you go on their website, they'll tell you that adopting uh, an animal is going to provide you with an uplifting experience. Hmm. Um, and then you also want to, and this is really important, and this is one thing that Kim Sterla definitely did, is redirect your product and consumers from the competition. And the competition in the case of rescue dogs was breeder dogs, right? Kennel dogs. And so there became this large campaign around sort of the, the evils or the negative aspects of actually buying a dog from a breeder or from a puppy mill. And in, that, and in this way, right, rescue dogs started to gain traction and started to become seen as a way to gain some status among hmm. their owners. Mm -hmm. And so to the point where people essentially brag about or immediately identify their animals as rescues. Because in doing so, they're conferring some, some status and some virtue upon themselves. Mm -hmm. What strikes me is so interesting about that story is that oftentimes 
were sold mostly highbrow physical things in which one creates status. But in this idea, I mean, a, a, a rescue dog is not particularly expensive. I mean, it can be in the hundreds of dollars. But what's being sold here is is really a concept or an ideal or an ethos that would have been considered, as you mentioned before, lowbrow. It, it's kind of a new way of thinking about what status is or how it can be sold or applied to people, don't you think? Absolutely. I mean, status is an artificial construct of the human mind anyway, right? Mm. It really has nothing to do with price or cost. That, that's, a, that's something that a lot of people have a hard time doing is decoupling this idea that status or prestige have money attached to them. Chapter three of your book, it's called Music, Wine, and Sex Appeal. And, and you mentioned a Caltech MRI study, which is pretty fascinating. Can you tell us what that study was all about? Yeah, it took place in the 2010s. It's one of my favorite studies in the book. And it looked at the way, it was trying to measure how people react to ideas of status and prestige. And a number of people were given um, these three different Cabernet wines. And they were hooked up to an, they were in an MRI machine, and so their, the, their brain patterns were being scanned while they were drinking cheap wine, a middle-priced wine, and an expensive wine. Um, what the subjects of the test were unaware of was that they were really drinking the same wine most of the time. But if they were told, okay, we're going to have you taste this wine now. This is a $10 a bottle Cabernet Sauvignon that we bought at Trader Joe's. Try this. And they would drink that and then their brain scans would be measured. And then later on they would say, okay, we're, this, this wine costs $120, it's another Cabernet, and we picked it up from this exclusive wine shop. Taste this one, exact same wine. Mm. And now suddenly the pleasure centers in their brain start going bonkers, just lighting up all over the place. And what this showed researchers, and showed me, is that you know we like to laugh at uh, people, these snobs who uh, drink expensive wine, and you say, ah, put a blindfold on them. They couldn't tell the difference between this, you know, $5 plonk and this $150, you know, vintage thing from France. And that might be true in terms of taste. But it turns out that ex people really do enjoy expensive wine more, not because of the taste or, you know, the history of the wine but because they think they're having a prestigious or a status-driven experience. And when people believe that, they do feel better. They, your dopamine levels start to increase. And so now this showed researchers, and this is part of the status revolution, that, that, that people from you know, ancient Greece and Rome and Christendom and the, the Industrial Revolution uh, critics like Thorsten Veblen and Vance Packard, who, who tended to poo-poo status, look at, look at it through a lens of sort of sinfulness or a moral failing or an intellectual weakness. It's not true. We are, to use the, the, the phrase of the day, hardwired to enjoy and to get, to get pleasure from, from status. And that, that um, experiment was carried out by a woman named Hilke Plasman and, you know, a lot of associates. But it was, it was really, it really shed a lot of light on how the brain experiences status. Well, a big part of your life has been that of a traveler and a travel writer. And there's a, there's a really interesting story also among the others in your book in which you go to British Columbia and there you meet with a First Nations totem pole carver. So why was that meeting so impactful to you? Well, I went up to British Columbia uh, to do a story for Outside Magazine about this totem pole carver. And I thought what I was going to be doing was writing about art and history, carving. In fact, it started to dawn on me pretty quickly as I got up there that I was writing about status. The totem pole that was being carved in particular by this um, renowned First Nations artist named Roy Vickers, who lives up in northern British Columbia, but um, if people have been out to the, the tourist town of Tofino, British Columbia, there's the Roy Vickers Gallery there. He's, he's a very well-known artist. Um, the totem pole that Roy, Roy Vickers was carving is known as the Raven Pole, and it was taken from a First Nations village in British Columbia, in coastal British Columbia, in the 1950s by this thing called the British Columbia Totem Pole Preservation Committee. And it now stands in the University of British Columbia's Museum of Anthropology. And this pole is noted to this day as one of the finest examples of uh, totem carving ever on the northwest coast of Canada and southeast Alaska. 
It's very intricate. It's unique. It's got a, some style and design features that um, kind of baffle art historians. They're not quite sure where they came from, but the artist who carved it is unknown. Uh, the band that he would have come from is unknown. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's one of these magnificent examples of, of totem carving. Well, this, he'd see this pole and it just kept bugging him, right? He'd go down to that museum in, in uh, Vancouver and he'd look at this magnificent pole and say, that, that thing used to stand in our village, which is up the coast a few hundred miles. And he wanted to do something that would kind of restore that, that pole, that, that central piece of, of sort of status to his village and his house. So he embarked on this quest to find a really old tree, like a 800-year-old tree, which you can't get your hands on anymore because they tend to be protected or all logged out, piece of cedar. And he wanted to replicate that, that pole and put it back in his village. And it took a long time. It took years. It took the cooperation of Interfor, a Canadian logging company, and the museum, and, and a, a lot of things went into it. But Roy finally got his tree and finally started carving it. And it took him many years to complete this project, but he finally did finish it. And it's almost an exact replica. And nothing could be perfect, but it's almost an exact replica of the, you know, 140, 130 year old totem that, that sits in that museum. And they erected it um, at a potlatch in the village a couple of years ago. And I was lucky enough to be invited to attend that potlatch and uh, watch that totem raising. And it was a, it's an emotional experience, and it really, um, you know, I, I'm not given to this type of hyperbole, but it was a very spiritual experience as well. And it really became clear to me that it wasn't that everybody was happy that Roy Vickers had carved this really cool-looking totem pole and is a really talented guy and knows what to do with a knife and a chainsaw. Um, it's that they were they were resurrecting this um, level of status to this village and mm. to First Nations people around the coast. And, you know, from where First Nations were in the 1880s when Canada was passing laws banning their culture and essentially taking their artwork away from them, their regalia, making it illegal, to getting to a point where, you know, Canada has now adopted their Truth and Reconciliation Committee um, or commission. And, you know, th there, there's a lot of uh, talk about reconciliation with and, and action with First Nations in Canada. And, and so again, it was another example of um, status in kind of an unlikely spot, place that you wouldn't expect, and, and rising up from the ashes, so to speak. Hmm. I've been speaking with Chuck Thompson, author of The Status Revolution, the improbable story of how the lowbrow became the highbrow. Chuck, thanks for sharing your book and some stories with us today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody, and we hope you enjoyed today's discussion on the history and significance of status. And once again, we'd love your thoughts and feedback. That's at our Facebook group, kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.